are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is BaptistChurch.com. First Samuel chapter 30. Chapter 30, Miss Tracy. Anyways, the Bible tells us that while David's in the mountains, hiding away, running from Saul, he's a fugitive, that a bunch of people start, these guys all start coming to him. It tells us several hundred. And it's like men of like ill repute. These are other fugitives. These are people that owe money. They got people chasing them. Anyways, and so... 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 3. Have I said anything other than Samuel? Sorry, guys. Okay. That's not a good indicator of how this is going to go. Who was already at 1 Samuel chapter 30? All right. You're my favorites. And I'll add Miss Tracy in just as a sweet gesture. 1 Samuel. I'll be honest. I feel like my S's are hitting hard. Maybe I was just not trying to do the S. I don't know. All right, let's start reading. Now that we've settled where we are. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking about of stoning him. Each one was bitter in, his, in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Let's just stop there and pray. Dear Lord, I thank you, God, that I get to talk to brothers and sisters today, for the most part, God, that we get to know that your Holy Spirit's in each of our hearts, God, and each of us want to take revelation from your scripture God, we want to take inspiration from your scripture. And so, Lord, right now, with the information overload that I feel, God, I pray that you'll help to organize it and help me to get it out in the way that it's supposed to, God, that the body will be edified. And so, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit right now just to anoint all of us, God, our ears and our mouths, God, to be able to experience your word. We pray this all in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. All right, y'all can be seated. Okay, so... If somebody's gone to undergraduate, they probably have gone through a British literature class or an English lit class and studied probably the story of Beowulf. Anybody remember the story of Beowulf? Maybe you did it in high school. I don't know. Oh, God. Okay. So Beowulf is one of like the most ancient epics ever, um, and it's the story about a young warrior who goes to help King Hrothgar, king of the Danes, and his mead hall is being just constantly attacked by this monster named Grendel, all right? Anybody ringing any bells? Okay, Grendel. And y'all, it's, you're not gonna enjoy reading it, but when you did, if you did, you would go, and it's kind of like poetic in how it's written. Beowulf goes, they enjoy a feast the night of, and then they all go to sleep, and I didn't have any of this in my notes, but now I feel like I need to tell you a little bit of the story. Beowulf watches Grendel come into the mead hall and kill a man just to see how Grendel, this monster, operates. And then he eventually kills Grendel. Grendel has a dragon mama. Mama comes up to avenge this death of her son. Beowulf kills mom too, right? And I had experienced that story in high school, and it's this idea of like good versus evil. 
And then in my undergraduate class, I experienced the story with this new twist. Why do you think Grendel was the way he was? And so part of what it was doing was like, oh, and it was like, oh, I got it, I got it, everybody's calm down. Uh, Grendel's evil, right? And then the conversation in this college British lit class was, what happened to Grendel that would make him act this way? Did he get made fun of? Maybe he couldn't afford all the other clothes that the guys had and the Danes had, I don't know. Um, and so there was this thought of, let's explain why Grendel is the way that Grendel is. I'm just gonna throw this out there and I'm skipping ahead already. Um, Thomas Sowell, who's a great, I think, intellectual of our time, and he writes out of Stanford University, he wrote this. He said, we see the world through one of two competing visions. He wrote this back in 1986, each of which tells a radically different story about human nature. Those with unconstrained vision, that's his term, think that humans are malleable and can be perfected. They believe that social ills and evils can be overcome through collective action that encourages humans to behave better. To subscribers of this view, poverty, crime, inequality, and war are not inevitable. Rather, they are puzzles that can be solved. We need only to say the right things, enact the right policies, and spend enough money, and we will suffer these social ills no more. This worldview is the foundation of what we would call the progressive mindset. Shift, by contrast, those who see the world through a constrained vision, that through that lens, believe that human nature is a universal constant. No amount of social engineering can change the sober reality of human self-interest, or the fact that human empathy and social resources are necessarily scarce. People who see things this way believe that most political and social problems will never be solved, they can only be managed. This approach is the bedrock of what we would call a conservative worldview. Um, I saw that reference to what we've seen in Israel in the past weeks, and what they said was that Hamas's barbar barbarism and the explanations and celebrations through the West that followed this violence have forced an overnight exodus from the unconstrained vision to a constrained view. And so what we know has happened, right? We know that on October 7th that this is in a Jewish holiday. It would be like us being attacked in a Thanksgiving or Christmas holiday in the States. It also happens on a Saturday, which is Sabbath. We know that's Sabbath for, for people in Israel. So phones are off, they're down, they're in the middle of a holiday celebration like we would experience probably at Christmas. And that's when the attack is scheduled, all right? They come through tunnels, they come through, we've seen these paragliders, so that was how one of these festivals was attacked. They come through vehicles, and they even come by water. And when they come, they, they rape, they murder, at ran seemingly at random, because any killing of any Israeli Jew was, gonna, was a win in their mind. They didn't care if it was a baby. They didn't care if it was an elderly woman. They didn't care if it was a father of children or the mother of children. They took life that day. But they didn't just take life. They actually wore GoPro cameras and then published it to the whole world, right? 
So one of the things that they did, and it's actually a, it's a concept called the gamification of terror. If you look at the GoPro, it almost looks like what you would see in a Call of Duty game because you see a rifle and it's being acted like a first-person shooter game. And they took that and they published that to the internet. They didn't just publish it to the internet. What they actually did in some cases, they would murder someone, they would pull out that person's device and they would go to that person's Facebook or social media page and they would post the murder of that person on that, one, on that person's social media. Or they'd use that person's phone to contact that person's family, the victim's family, and show them firsthand what that person had gone through. Like it was just terror like we haven't seen in a long, long time. I don't know that we've ever seen it like that. And so we went a few weeks ago, we had a quick history of Israel. I'll be honest, I thought, you know what, I'm going to do a better job. I'm going to go and research the history of Israel and this territorial conflict, and I'll do a better job, and there's no, it's not possible. Um, you already know enough, and if I tried to go through each of the concepts, everybody would be like, I wonder what's going to be for lunch. Um, like if we went like really in-depth with history, we would just get lost in it. But what we do know is that the nation of Israel <clears throat> is less than half the size of New Jersey. We know the nation of Israel has about 7 million Jews or so that live in the nation of Israel. We know that it, was re like it, it gained its nationhood back in 1947-48. We know that this, was a this is a group of people that were scattered all over the earth but there was still a majority in old Jerusalem, even in the 1800s, and that Jews all over the world had no nation to call home for forever. And think about it. One of the parts of end-time prophecy, Davion knows this because he's looking at Revelation so much, is that the nation of Israel would actually be back. And then out of the blue, the nation is actually established. Now, I thought whenever I was going to look at the history of it that I was going to find that the world was like, hey, the Holocaust showed us all of this. We're just going to give this nation to the Jews. And maybe that's a threat of it, but it's not really true. What we have is that the British controlled what is now modern-day Israel and that territory. And they say, hey, we've got to get rid of this. Y'all, we've heard of the idea of post-colonialism. And so colonizers, if you don't know it, I'm going to tell you. Um, what America started as colonies, right? And so there was a group of people here that came and colonized America. Um, co co like colonialism means that one empire goes and takes over another territory and imposes its culture and will on that territory. In literature, we have what we call post-colonial critical theory, which would be like a lens of how I'm going to view this literature. So post-colonialism is this, is where that maybe the formerly oppressed people and the lens of the oppressors all these years have been used to like, say what culture is. Post-colonialism strips away all of those lens and filters, and it just looks at maybe what that original culture would have thought without having been oppressed by a colonizer. Everybody good? We're good? Okay, cool. Um, if you look at Israel becoming a nation, the British were colonizers, Many Jews already there, many Arabs also there. Um, at first, when Israel becomes a nation, it would have been a celebration of post-colonialism. The, col the colonizing oppressor, Britain, is gone, and now 
Jews are there to stay. And it was actually celebrated as that for a while, and we don't know where the twist comes, but there's a twist in how it's interpreted eventually. But like we said, Israel, the moment it declares its independence, it's attacked by all the surrounding nations. And I don't know how it happens. This is one of the reasons, if you did not believe in God, the formation of Israel as a nation, I think it's one of the greatest pieces of evidence that there has to be a God. There's no other way that this nation comes back together and this ragtag group of people are able to defend more sophisticated, long-lasting nations that all bullied up around it, surrounding it. So not only that, does it do that, it actually gains territory in that moment. And then we know that there's other conflicts that come in 1967, and 1973, and 1993, we have what they call the Oslo Accords, and it was attempt at peace. And so here's what you need to know, and I'm just shooting from the hip. Israel declares it's, it's a nation, and it declares its independence. And since that time, the nations around never really accepted it. In that territory, there were Arabs and there were Jews. They were all there, all right? And, but whenever Israel becomes a nation, Jews from all over the world start going there. Think about it. You just had six million Jews killed in the Holocaust. They're going to safety in the nation of Israel. They start migrating home. But there's still these Arabs that were there. The word Palestinian is not found anywhere in those old documents because the word Palestinian didn't even exist then. They were just Arabs. And so we go to this, and now in the 90s of the Clinton administration, the Oslo Accords were an attempt to say, hey, the Palestinian people need to have some representation in this government. They can't have, be up under the, they can't be subjected to Israel. And then we've seen that fight continue on and on. I wish I had a map, because I don't know, I think I'm not the only one in here, but until I started getting ready for today, I had never looked to see where Gaza was. Um, and I didn't know where the West Bank was. Honestly, when, I, when you said West Bank, I pictured like a sand dune somewhere. It's like over half the territory of the nation of Israel, and it kind of does like a B-shape and comes in and cuts off at Jerusalem and then comes back into the nation of Israel and goes along Jordan. Gaza is removed from that on the beach there. There's like on the coastline, there's a beach there. That's Gaza. So part of what I want to do is like we hear these key terms, right? We hear these, these words used, these names used, and we actually don't know what any of them mean. And so for a Palestinian, it's somebody that's Arab that apparently doesn't belong to any other nation in that area, but was around, around Israel's territory all through history, allegedly. And so let's look at our key terms. Zionism. Anybody heard Zionism? No, oh, y'all gotta listen to the news. Zionism was the belief that there should be an actual state of Israel. There should actually be a nation of Israel. And so it was actually coming in the 1800s. People were like, hey, you know what? There's nowhere safe for a Jew. The Jewish people, hey, there's nowhere safe for our people to be. We need to create. We need our own nation. And so it starts in the late 1800s, and then it moves forward until finally, like we said, Israel actually has its own statehood. So Zionism is a belief that there should be a nation. I think there's maybe a more spiritual term for it, like dating back to Abraham, but we're just going to go with the belief that, it should be, that Israel should have a nation. It should be a nation. Also, has anybody heard in these protests from the river to the sea? All right, so whenever you hear pro-Palestinian protests, you'll hear them like, to the river, to the sea, Palestine should be free, right? You've got to hand it to protesters. Sometimes the slogans have, are catchy. What I would love to ask many people demonstrating is what river? Can you name that river and can you name that sea? Somebody did it and they were like, Euphrates? And the Euphrates River would like include Iraq and a bunch of different countries. It's the Jordan River 
and I, once again, I'm like on a map, like Googling, like, Jor like Jordan River. And then it's like where Jesus was baptized. Like, I think that's the right one. All right. And then so the river, the Jordan River, all the way to the Mediterranean. If you look at a map of Israel, that is the exact almost geography of Israel. And so when we hear people protesting and saying that it should be from the river to the sea, Palestine should be free, it's this idea. Bell, are you pointing out that there's a map in your Bible? Yeah. Um, I should have looked there, but I looked on the internet first. Um, from the river to the sea is the idea that there should not, there should only be Palestine, there should not be an Israel. And so then we have other key terms. Hamas. Okay, anybody heard of Hamas? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in the 90s, we had the Palestinian Authority. This is the political body that helped, over, uh, helped govern that whole, na the Arab nation, Palestine there. So you had the Palestinian Authority, all right? And then, eventually, you have Hamas, and we talked about this a few weeks ago here, it was actually developing in the 80s, but it wins political power in 2006 in Palestine. And so one of the things that we see with Hamas is like this is a, t a designated terrorist group by the U.S. government. And they, they were actually elected into office in 2006. And for everybody that wants to say, well, wait a second, you know, if, if Israel would just be more reasonable, if they'd give more territory, if they'd do this, this, and this. In 2005, they, there's a word for it, I can't think of what it is, but they, Israel pulls back of all contested territories. They were out of the Gaza Strip entirely. They move out of Gaza. In 2005, they take and they build a wall. And they're hey, we're just going to stay out of Gaza. Do what you want with it. And I would love to tell you that really smart people with a lot of oil money came and actually developed Gaza into a metropolis, and it was the Singapore of the Middle East. But that wasn't the case. A year later, they elect Hamas, a designated terror organization, to be their leadership. And in 2007, Hamas has control over the Gaza Strip. Whenever Israel pulls back in 2005, they build that wall, they stay out. In 2006, when Hamas gains leadership in 2007, that's when the rockets start. So these rockets just getting fired into Israel from the strategic point in Gaza. And that's what Hamas is all about. Even a part of their constitution, I don't know what the actual word is for it, for that, their written document, it is that there should be no Israel. Well, how are you supposed to negotiate with someone that says that you, should, you shouldn't even exist? Like, you have no right to nation. And so the whole world right now is telling us that they should be negotiating. But how are they supposed to negotiate with somebody that says they should not exist? So we've gone through what happened on October 7th. We talked about some of our key terms. You're going to hear the word West Bank, Gaza. We've talked about those. They're big chunks of geography. You're going to hear the word that Israel has an apartheid government. That means that it's a separate, somebody else because of their ethnic class is separate from the ruling party, right? Because you're not an Israeli Jew, you're not a part of our government. They're saying that's apartheid. We talked about post-colonialism. Post um, and then, you, you know, I think we all know what exi existential threat means. But whenever you hear that Israel views Hamas as an existential threat, it goes back to what we said. They believe that Hamas is actually threatening the existence of Israel. So how do you negotiate with someone that serves an existential threat to you? All right, so there's where we are. We've talked about what happened on October 7th. Now listen, one thing about it, you would think when they put the videos out, like when they posted it to social media websites, and when the world was encountering the violence of Hamas on October 7th, that there would just be widespread 
like denouncing that action. And it kind of started that way. But then, I don't know if y'all have noticed, I don't know how many people watch the news, so I'll tell you the news. Um, we see protests in American college campuses. We see protests in American cities. People holding posters, keep the world clean. What do you think that means? Do you, do you realize they mean keep the world clean from a Jew? Like rid the world of Jews? Gas the Jews. Sydney, Australia, shortly after this is announced, you would think there would be this, like, at least an empathy, a sympathy towards the, pe the nation of Israel, that they've just been attacked, similar to, it's like Israel's version of 9-11. That's what we, what we would think, right? You'd think they would get some sympathy from the rest of the world. Within hours in Sydney, Australia, hundreds of people get together. You know what they're chanting? Gas the Jews. We see glorification of Hamas with Black Lives Matter in Chicago using a paraglider as their logo. And when they're asked what their statement is to apologize for, they say they have nothing to apologize for. In these parades, I've seen big, huge banners with queers for Palestine, gays for Palestine, lesbians for Palestine. One of the things that they did to make sure that people didn't forget the hostages that were taken, because there's close to 300 hostages that were taken the day of October 7th, was that a group in the West Coast started printing posters of missing children, and then in major cities all over the world, they take these posters and they put up the posters of the missing Israeli children, just so we wouldn't forget what's at stake here. And in cities all over the world, we've had people going up, ripping them down, and using the Arab word for dog. In Germany, they saw an increase in anti-Semitism by 240%. In the United States, nearly 400% increase in anti-Semitic acts. And in London, 1,353%. A synagogue in Berlin was firebombed. In Paris, the door of an elderly Jewish couple's apartment was burned. Theirs was the only apartment in the building that had a mezuzah, the Ten Commandments, posted on their door. According to London police, there are 218 anti-Semitic hate crimes reported in the capital between October and 1st and 18th, and there were 13.50% increase, I already said that, in this, over the same last year. Mobs across the world have gathered to cheer for Hamas's barbarism, and we have reported that Jews have been intimidated to meet in American cities and U.S. universities all over in recent weeks. When the White House is asked about this, so they're asked, hey, what do you think about the increase in anti-Semitic acts? This is what Corrine Jean-Pierre says. We have not seen any credible threats. I know there's been all these questions about credible threats, and so I just want to make sure that that's out there. But look, Muslims and those perceived to be Muslim have endured a disproportionate number of hate-fueled attacks. And certainly President Biden understands that many of our Muslim, Arab, American, and Palestinian-American loved ones and neighbors are worried about the hate being directed at their communities. She never addresses the Jew. Also, her claim about American Muslims being disproportionately targeted, it's not even correct. According to FBI data, Muslims make up about 1% of the population of the U.S. and their target of 9.6% of hate crimes. Jews make up about 2% of the U.S. population and, make up, and their target of hate crimes is 51.4% of all hate crimes is against Jewish people. Jews have a saying, they say that Europeans never forgave the Jews for the Holocaust. And it's at the end, no matter what, at the end of the day, a Jew ends up bearing the blame for what happens in the world, even when it's violence against a Jew. Which is why we have 
UN secretaries and everybody else in the midst of horrible violence that happens against Israel when young women, young men, little boys and girls, infants are targeted, that one of the first statements they make is this didn't happen in a vacuum. And that's where we come to another, more, uh, another key term, moral equivalency. And it's the idea that because Israel has this statehood and they oppress Palestinian people in that area, that they should, they, they're going to be attacked. And that for Hamas or a Palestinian to go and mow down somebody with an, with an assault rifle, it's okay because their people were mowed down by Israeli bombs years before. We've watched as university presidents and politicians who are quick to issue statements regarding Russia and Ukraine, they fall silent or offer the most slippery, equivocal statements carefully crafted to avoid offending anti-Israel groups. An Israeli at Columbia University is beaten with a stick. Physical intimidation of students on campuses all over, there's a group of Jews hiding in a library while marchers bang on the door outside for Palestine. Right after the incident in Israel, right after those terrorist attacks, we have over a, a dozens of dozens of student organizations at Harvard signing a letter. I want to say it was 31. They, these are 31 groups, not 31 students. 31 groups of students sign a letter jointly holding Israel entirely responsible for the massacre of Israelis. And then the press wants to come out, and normally we would call somebody like this a terrorist, but the press come out and they call them militants. They're calling them soldiers. They take, we have Palestinian Health Ministry, which is just another arm of Hamas, and we have them taking what we would call propaganda. The U.S. has designated Hamas a terrorist group. The U.S. has said that, that a bombing in a hospital didn't happen, that the death toll is different, that it likely came from a Hamas bomb. But instead, the U.S. media actually, so our own government said that, the U.S. media says it looks like Israel bombed a hospital. Really quickly, the New York Times posts that article. And think about how far we moved away. When Barack Obama ran for president in 2008, he's asked about the conflict with Israel and Palestine. You know what Barack Obama 2008 says? He says, if, someone, if somebody was sending rockets into my house where my two daughters slept at night, I'm going to do everything in my power to stop that. I would expect Israelis to do the same. But those times, that tone shifted. There's a guy that actually, these, these skirmishes have happened. Like wars between Hamas and Israel have been happening now for years. We've just never seen the type of terror that we saw on October 7th. And so I actually have a speech that somebody had written and they wrote it for what happened in 2014, another uh, altercation between these two people groups. But y'all, I say all this just to point out that it's not, natural like it's not logical like at what point does the population we've talked about a hundred times i think it's like 0.19 percent i don't have that written down of the world's population why is all why are all of the media all of the stories all of the governments everything pointing at these two at, the, at this nation right at the nation of israel it does not make sense and so I say all that to say it isn't just because of the, barbar the barbarity that we saw. I want us to see the fact that this isn't a worldly battle. This isn't a logical battle. 
why else would queers <laughs> for Palestine exist? Do y'all know what Palestinians and Hamas terror group does with somebody that would promote that lifestyle? So when I saw that, it, for me, it was just a, a awakening of, wait a second, this isn't logical. You are voting, you are rooting for the people that would murder you for your lifestyle and what you would say is your sexual orientation. Like they throw you off, literally throw you off a roof over there. Hamas has that view. Israel's actually socially liberal. They have, like, you pretty much can be whatever you want over there as far as sexuality goes. You would think if the queers of NYC or whatever social group this was, was trying to actually set, support somebody that aligned with their ideals, they would support Israel. But it's not about logic, and it's not about even an ideology. It's a spiritual thing. And when I saw it, I thought, you know what? Their God, little g, their God is telling them what to do. And they're following the desires and the plans of their God, little g. It's a spiritual conflict. So let me ask you this. We've seen, and I've held back because it's really graphics, the, the stuff that happened on October 7th. I've held back. Um, we've seen all of that violence, right? And I don't want to, let me say this, there are innocent people in Palestine. There are innocent people that are going to die as a result of bombing efforts of, of Israel. I believe that Israel's totally justified in what it's doing, and that ultimately those innocent people that die, are their death should be on the hands of Hamas that does it. Because one of the things about Hamas and their modest operandi, their MO is this. They take and put, like where they're putting their weapons, where they're putting their headquarters, it's all surrounded by civilians. And so, you put your base, your HQ headquarters under a hospital. You fire your rockets from behind a school. And then Israel has this really big dilemma of if we're going to try to disable this missile, this rocket launch, whatever, then we actually have to risk taking civilian casualties. This has been the case for decades. Like we've known this about Hamas. But now the media is telling you, hey, you know what? Gaza's so densely populated, there's nowhere else to fire a rocket. Like, if you were looking for a place to fire a rocket, Israel, you know what? You'd probably have to choose a school, right? How illogical is that? And it's also not true. Gaza's not that densely populated. We have cities all over the world that are more populated than Gaza. But their MO is we're going to hide it. We're going to put it behind civilians. We're going to keep civilians from leaving. Think about it. Israel held back and said, hey, we were warning people to leave. Egypt's not taking refugees. Jordan's not taking refugees. They're closing their borders. And Hamas is telling people, you stay where you're at. Where Israel builds bunkers for its people, where his, its people spend weeks underground, Hamas uses the bunkers for military operations, and its civilians stay upside on surface, and their casualty will be a nice talking point in a propaganda war. And so what we see is like that's how the enemy's working and a lot of innocent people. So whenever we talk up here, we are not discounting the Palestinian lives. Innocent Palestinian lives that will be lost. We need to mourn those. But ultimately it comes from, I think, an evil agenda by an evil group of terrorists and there's no other way to look at it. Just so you know, Israel has three ways that it tries to um, consider civilian lives. 
One is intelligence to see where, like, as, as good of intelligence as possible to see where is an actual weapon. We don't want to take any chances. The other is through warnings. So it's not leaflets dropped, even though I think that can be it. Literal phone calls to a dwelling. Hey, we're about to bomb. I think in 2020 or 2021, Israel bombed an AP building. It was a big deal in 21. We all forgot about it until this happened. And some of you still forgot about it. Um, but they bombed the AP building. Not a single person died in the bombing because there were warnings to journalists to get out. And what they said was there were, um, there were Hamas operations going down in there. So intelligence, warnings, and limitation. There's times where they have opportunities to take out huge strongholds of military, high-level Hamas officials. They do not do it that, that out of self-limitation. Now, let me say this. I don't care if a journalist takes every piece of Israeli reports and is skeptical about it. Journalists are supposed to be skeptical, which is why the New York Times shouldn't have posted a headline that said that Israel bombed a hospital, taking the word of the health ministry, health ministry of Hamas. But at the end of the day, we actually need journalistic skepticism to give us some truth, and we don't see it showing up in American media. All right, so here's the question. Everything that we've seen, what was your reaction? And don't answer. I just want you to think about it. Because I think for the majority of Americans, there's no reaction. See, I, I, I wrote down American Christian indifference. Like that story barely breaks into your newsfeed. Now, part of it is, I believe, a concerted effort by those in power to keep it out of your newsfeed. But you had every little meme video feed showing you how to make a new version of Cinnamon Toast, but you didn't get to see the war that was happening against, I believe, a, cov a covenant people of God in the Middle East. And if it didn't get in your news feed, it didn't get into even your consciousness. It didn't even really affect you. And it didn't affect our prayer lives. Let me ask you, if you were just going to guess what God would want, does that sound like it? That God would want his American church so inebriated by materialism and comfort that it never actually thinks to mourn or pray for his covenant people, Abrahamic covenant people, the Jews in Israel? We're too busy with our 40-hour work weeks, kids' sports practices, the NFL, professional sports, thinking about all the good things we're going to eat or make. Like We're too busy thinking about all of that to actually think about anybody else but ourselves. So one of it's just, I think, American indifference. The other one I thought was maybe we do this out of American fragility. Like, we can't handle it. I don't even want to know. I don't want to have to worry. I don't want to have to think about it. I don't have to see that. I don't want to be impacted by that. And you're pushing it, and you don't want it because you think you're too weak to handle it. Uh, over a decade ago, there were 25 Coptic Christians, and they were all beheaded on an Egyptian shoreline by ISIS. And so many American Christians never even thought to pray for them or to pray for themselves, thinking that could be them. And then I thought, has Satan so successfully influenced us to be simple, to be so self-centered, that we only consider the rudimentary aspects of our life? Because I think we got to start thinking about, and one thing that's nice about the end, end times discussion, the end times discussion pushes me to think about what is God actually doing outside of my, my schedule? 
And the American devotional life is so much about, like, you're going to live your best life now, right? Or what's God doing in your heart and your mind? Those are all good things, and enjoying God is a good thing, and I think enjoying God's blessing is a good thing. But if it only ever is that, and your Christianity is only ever in your, like, only about you, then I'm not sure it's Christianity. And one of the nice things about end times, and I'm thankful because I honestly believe, Davion, that the Holy Spirit gave you that urge to think about it. You're leading into stuff, and stuff started coming up after it. So instead of blaming you, we're just going to say, we credit the Holy Spirit. The end times discussion, the other thing I like about it is this, and this is why some of you can't handle it. You start talking about a rapture, you start talking about Jesus coming back, and non-Christians that act like Christians and pretend to be Christians get really uncomfortable. Because at the end of the day, it's like, that sounds so phantasmic. My, I don't know if I can handle it. And y'all, that's, there's been times where that was me. Stuff was talked about, and I'm like, you know, do we even have to talk about the end times? Do we even have to talk about Jesus coming back or what revelation means? Because whenever you do, it just sounds so weird. It sounds so Middle Earth, Harry Potter, fantasy. You know why I felt that way? It was because my faith was weak. And some of you, your faith is so weak, you can't even handle the thought of Jesus coming back a second time for judgment and glory. Some of you, your faith's so weak, it's like, I can't even comprehend the idea of a rapture. And let me tell you this, the secular world and the academics that I hang around with, they're a bunch of butts. They love to make fun of the rapture. They love to mock it. But at the same time, my sister Belle has pointed out that some of the stuff we see in the movies and all the alien talk, I believe is that same civilization setting up an excuse to explain the rapture when it does happen. So if your faith isn't strong enough to consider the truth of the end times, then you need to strengthen your faith or you need to get saved. Because if it's not strong enough to consider the fact that Jesus is going to come back for his church, maybe it's not strong enough to get you to heaven. And that's what I like about the end times, that it actually upset where I'm just, y'all, I'll be honest, I like business. I like working. I tell you all the time, I like to work. If you told me you could do anything else for the rest of your life, you'd be like, I'll start another business. I'll start a business. I want to be at my desk. One of my favorite places to be is behind my desk at work. So I enjoy working. And I think that sometimes that God brings up stories like the end times or even what happened in Israel to upset that. That there was something else I should probably be working on. Something else I should probably be considering and using my creativity to think about. I also think that sometimes, y'all, the American church is lazy. Like, we talk about evangelism, and I know what happens. It's like, that sounds like a lot of work. And where I'm laziest, there's two areas. Alicia knows. Housekeeping, number one. And probably evangelism, number two. <laughs> All right? And listen, sometimes the American church is so lazy, we don't want to have to labor in prayer for people in the Middle East. Also, some of y'all that said the end times know this, part of prophecy is that there will be a revival in Israel, that a bunch of Jews are going to get saved and start worshiping Jesus. So what else would Satan do except to try to stir up as much hate and animosity towards that group of people as possible to stop that from happening? 
I think that a lot of us are too lazy. We just don't think about it. And let me just encourage you, if there's anything that you're going to work out in life, if there's anything that you're going to pursue or give time to, let it just be the things of God. By building his church. And by building his church, that means sharing our faith and telling people about the gospel of Jesus. And then, y'all, I think the other side of it is that the American church, we're a bunch of cowards. A lot of us, y'all, you have you found yourself, and listen, in the academic world, it's totally true. And some of you may not be academics, but you are still there because the internet made you that way. It's the idea that I'm going to position myself in the middle. And so it's the person that it's like, you know, I don't agree with maybe the transgender movement, but I don't like the way that Christian's talking about it. I don't like your tone. I don't like the way that you fought it. I don't like the way that you spoke to somebody. And it's from the middle. See, what I'm doing now is I get to cast judgment on everybody and have no judgment on myself because I'm evasive. I'm in the middle. Alicia said something. She's like, I mean, I see both sides of it. And I was like, don't tell me that. I've been like getting ready for this. And I'm so sick and tired about hearing about both sides. Because I work in criminal defense stuff and it's like, I can see both sides of the murder. Like, at the end of the day, like, I understand why he killed her, but <laughs> I'm tired of both sides. At some point, y'all, in life, there's a right and there's a wrong. And the truth is, a lot of times we over-scrutinize, position ourselves in the center, and talk bad about everybody except ourselves because we aren't strong enough to stand up and say, hey, you know what, that's wrong. And it's one of the reasons my dad's crazy. He says that stuff, like, over and over again. I'm like, Dad, you can't do that. Stop. But a lot of times we don't just stand up and say whether something's right or wrong. And listen, that is not what Christianity is about. At the end of the day, one of the reasons I think we have a decrease in baptisms is because we stopped telling people they were sinners. We're so busy trying to figure out why they sin and adjust that, and then maybe they won't sin anymore and they'll be able to see Jesus, than to say, you know what, all of us learned before we came to faith, I was a sinner. I was born a sinner. And all over and over again, choose sin. But... Jesus saves sinners, right? But a lot of times we lose sight of that. We won't do it. And so the last thing I'll say is this. If we're going to strive, strive for courage to stand up on what's right. And you know what I like about family? And this is where I think this, the people of God, this is awesome. Because we're family, you know, we talk about that. Like we're, God, we're, we're a spiritual family. What I like about something is like, if I hurt Junior. <laughs> if I hurt Junior, do you think Mandel cares about both sides? Nah. At the end of the day, it shows family and how mad and how he reacts. And if I'm like, well, Junior wouldn't stop talking, that's why I hit him. What? Do you think Mandel cares about that? There, there's no both sides when it, came, when it comes to family, right? And what I like is this is that in the family of God and in the kingdom of God, when we see the attacks of the enemy on that, there's no both sides there. We come out and we defend family. We come out and we defend our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the American church is really bad at that. So what I ask is this, is that you have enough courage to care. That you have enough courage to be conscious of what's actually happening in the world, to look at it and think about it, contemplate it, pray over it, and act on it. That you have that kind of courage. 
And if nobody knows where you stand, you're a coward. Because at the end of the day, I think we need to stand up on God's truth, stand up in his power, and then show courage in the midst of that, and God will strengthen our cause. What I've gotten the feeling of recently is this, is that maybe worship's been so good here because evil's getting so dark out there. Maybe God's been moving so much in here because Satan's moving so much out there. Embrace it. He did not do it for you to live your best life now. He did it for us to push and further his kingdom. And so lastly, let's go back to David here. All the, his, women, his wives, this is the only time you should be thinking about having two wives, just with date. His wives are both taken. The men want to kill him. He's greatly distressed, but it says he takes, he takes strength, found strength in the Lord is God. In verse 7, and this is all we're going to read, and then we're going to get out of here. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the Bezer Valley, where, they, where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley. But David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat. And it's really funny the detail they go to in the food here, but check it out. Um, food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and was revived, for he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. David asked him, who do you belong to? Where do you come from? He said, I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev of the Carathites, some territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, this is a really smart guy, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master and I will take you down to them. He led David down and there they were scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from, the du from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away except for 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. <sighs> October 7th, people actually came and they took family. They took family from Israel. Immediately, the whole world's like, hey, proportionate response. Don't commit any war crimes. Don't do any of this. Make sure that you don't be disproportionate. It shouldn't be a tooth for an eye. It shouldn't be. They don't have, they were getting constantly nagged about how they responded to somebody coming in and raping their sisters, their daughters, their mothers, and taking them. So let's just shift and look how David responded. First, he mourned. He had issues with leadership, took care of that. He inquires of the Lord, and then he pursues justice. Everybody in the world is going to shortcut and be like, well, justice tells us that, and they're going, to try to they're going to try to lecture us on justice. And I think that for us, we always need to take that same approach that David took. 
We want to be people that inquire the Lord, take strength in the Lord, and then we pursue justice. And ultimately, guys, the only hope for Palestine and Israel to ever get along and to coexist in the same, in the same area of land is Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, we lose identity of our ethnic identity. There's no more of that. Now we have the identity of Jesus Christ. And so what we need to be is like, we're going to be people that we root for the kingdom of God in that area. But we're also going to look and see the schemes of the enemy and recognize them for what they are. And there's a million talking head academics that will try to convince you otherwise, but it's clear for true Christians to see. And that doesn't mean that we diminish the lives lost of Palestinians. That is extremely sad. But at the end of the day, we're not going to sit here and tell the nation of Israel that it can't go and go after terrorists that struck its home country. Ultimately, we all believe, guys, if you're a Christian, you believe that God and his, and his power foretold everything that's happening now. That a nation would come back together, that all the nations of the world would turn against it, and we're seeing end-time prophecy. It looks like it's lining up. No one knows if, it's, if this is the end time or not. We don't know. But at the end of the day, we see all these pieces coming together, and we'd be foolish if we ignored it. So let's stand up and pray. Lord, so much information to try to give, God. And Lord, honestly, I did it because I worried about perspectives that have been, that, that have been taken from the media, from the culture, from the marches, from the protest, that, Lord, a lot of times don't even have facts. And so we try to use facts just to make sure we were talking accurately about the situation. And God, where I messed those up, I ask for your grace. But Lord, I pray that most of all, God, that even in the midst of facts, God, that we realize this is about faith, that this is a spiritual war, God, and we have an enemy. And the American church has been so insulated from that and comforted away from that that, God, a lot of times we're asleep. Lord, I pray that you'll continue to wake us up. Lord, that you'll wake us up in a way that'll be through our Bible reading, that'll be in our prayer life. And that, God, more and more we'll find ourselves just walking in tune with your Holy Spirit and, God, confronting evil where we see it. Lord, give us courage. Lord, you've taken cowards for thousands of years and turned them into courageous warriors. Lord, we ask for you to do that now. And we pray this all in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.